Lesson 10, uh, the Lord is King, taking us from sorrow to salvation. We look now at chapter 3, verses 17 to the end of the book, verse 20. In 314, uh, the people of God are commanded to sing and shout and rejoice and rejoice greatly because the Lord has taken away her judgments against her, cleared away her enemies, and now He dwells with His people. That wonderful height of the covenant promise, the King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst, verse 15. And that uh, pinnacle of covenant fulfillment, God dwelling with His people, is repeated in verse 17 as... A, the foundation of a series of parallel statements culminating in God singing with joy Himself. Verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What a beautiful statement of the love of God. O. Palmer Robertson refers to this verse as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And here we see three parallel lines that express the deepest joy and satisfaction of God for His people. This is a progressive parallel. As you probably know, there are uh, several kinds of parallelisms in Hebrew poetry. There's the synonymous parallel. The second line essentially repeats the first line using different words, might give it a different perspective. Uh, then there is the antithetical parallel. The second line will present the antithetical truth to the first line. The book of Proverbs is full of those things. A, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And then there's other types of parallels. But what we have here is a progressive parallel. Each line is building upon the previous line, and it begins with God's own joy to His quiet delight in His people, and then it bursts forth in God Himself singing out in love. 17b, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We see the same pattern of love bursting forth in song in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Jerusalem. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. We sing. And why do we sing? We sing because God sings. This is a love that is contemplated deep within the very being of God. 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. And that love bursts forth in God singing to His people. You may not often think about God singing, but here it is. And as God sings to His people, His people sing back to Him. The climax of the church's worship is not just blending our voices together. There's that element, certainly, Colossians 3, 16, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But the climax of our singing is to God and God to us. We join in a chorus with God. And there's a superabundant measure of sheer delight in God Himself. Christian, God delights in you. Your King rejoices in you. And the unconditionality, the intensity of God's love toward you is a covenant commitment. It ought to be really reassuring to us when we get to this verse to know 
even through our own failures to love and serve Him as we should, that God's love doesn't grow out of our love for Him. God's love isn't a plant that grows in the soil of our service, as if, the, as if we feed God's love. Psalm 52 reminds us that the steadfast love of God endures all the day. In fact, it seems to me that most often God's steadfast love is tied together with the, no surprise here in Zephaniah, defeat of his enemies and deliverance from sin. It is God's love which delivers you, not your faithfulness. He loves us in spite of our unfaithfulness. And that's why David can pray, oh, upon me, uh, or have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Now the word here used for love isn't the typical word used of God's loving kindness, kessed covenant faithfulness. Interestingly, that word kesed isn't used in Zephaniah. It's quite rare actually in the minor prophets, but the concept is certainly here. But this word is a bit different. The word ahav, the word is used to describe a love that we can know even in our humanity. It is a word that's used to describe the love that Jacob had for Rachel. It's the use to describe Jonathan's friendship with David. It's the way that Jacob loved his son, Joseph. It's used often in the Song of Solomon. It's, it's a love of great intensity and purpose and sheer delight. You see it in the story of the prodigal son, very closely related here. Even when the, the, the repentant son is a long way off, before he can say a word, Luke 15, 20, his father sees him as compassion and runs and falls on his neck and kisses him. What's God doing? He's inviting his people to come. And that is why even, even when we sin, we should be anxious to seek God, especially when we sin, we should seek Him. Because here's a picture of God delighting in His children. And it should drive the people of Judah to Him. And it should drive us to Him. Our sin shames us, but should never keep us from God. Because He's the only one who can remedy it. The only one who can purge it. And so He welcomes the sinner. This is a love that's seen all the way back to the Garden of Eden at that first promise of redemption. What does Adam do when God confronts him? He runs. But God doesn't let him run. He finds him hopeless in his sin. And He provides a way of salvation for him. Genesis 3.15 pointing to the offspring of the woman. And then we see this description of God being quieted by his love for us. Uh, the word karach, it's a, uh, the word for quiet here, it's a, an imperfect verb. The ESV is a little bit unhelpful here because it supplies the word you, and it makes the translation read, he will quiet you uh, by his love. It's more accurately translated, I think, by the New American Standard, he will be quiet in his love. It's typically an intransitive, uh, it, an intransitive verb. It reveals the inward condition of the subject, not the effect on the other person. We're getting, we're really getting a glimpse, an intimate glimpse into the heart of God 
This is an indescribable love known only through Jesus Christ. It is a love that is shown for his people in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the love of the cross. And maybe we can't adequately define it. We can certainly know it. Uh, years ago, I was, I was preaching on this text, and I used the example of trying to express love, and we just don't quite know how. Love for, for your spouse. And so you try different things. You, you write notes. You try poetry, and it doesn't work. So you try prose and, and, and candlelight dinners and romantic ballads, and, and we still feel like it's just, we can't, can't it's not enough. We, we can't describe how much we love the love of our lives. And I said something like, did, did you ever feel like you just wanted to just, just yell? You just can't describe that much love. And at one point, one member of the congregation leaned, leaned over to his wife and just a little too loudly, uh, he said, uh, isn't that why God made chocolate? Yeah, fair enough. That's why God made chocolate. You, you, you just can't, you can't express this. What Zephaniah is doing is expressing the inexpressible. This mighty one who saves, he's described in verse 17, is quieted by his love for us. And now this mighty one who saves addresses us himself. And when the king sends you a message, you better listen. When the king sends his messenger to you, you'd really better listen. And the king shows up on your doorstep, and he looks you in the eyes, and he speaks. Nothing else is in the sight of your vision. God himself speaks in these last three verses of Zephaniah. Before Zephaniah telling us what God said, now it's God himself. It doesn't mean these words are more authoritative than they've been up to this point. But here's the culmination of the work is the emphasis here. God's done. He's conquered his enemies. He's the great and true king of his people, the one who's been faithful, the one who's never failed, the one who's fulfilled all of his promises. He's seated on his throne now, and he's declaring his love to his people. And all through Zephaniah, we have gatherings for judgment. Chapter 2, O gather together, O shameless nation. Here in chapter 3, God will assemble nations and kingdoms. He'll pour out His indignation upon His enemies. Now we see a gathering, but it's a different one. This is a gathering now that is set up over and against the gathering of the nations for judgment. It is the gathering of the people of God for blessing. 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Here we have a picture of the people of Israel wandering aimlessly, nobody to gather them, no festival to which they may go, no feasts of worship. In 2 and verse 1, they were told to gather together to repent before judgment comes, but they can't do that. They can't gather themselves. They've sinned. Judgment from God is upon them. They'd be scattered like the children of Israel in Egypt. Out of Egypt, they aimlessly wander. Lamentations 1, the road to Zion mourns, for none come to the festival. 
All her gates are desolate. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. But now God says, I will gather those who mourn for the festival. I will deliver you from your sin so that you'll no longer suffer reproach. Interesting word, reproach. It means being taxed too much. The burden that is so heavy that you can't bear it. The shame of the exile, the burden of Egypt upon them. It's more than they can bear. It's a reproach on the people. My iniquities have gone over my head, the psalmist said, like a heavy burden. They're too much for me. But then suddenly, in the midst of this contemplation of sin's burden, we hear a call to worship. I will gather those who mourn for the festival. God's gathering His people to the restoration and purification of worship. God's elect will rejoice in their worship. They'll be able to do what God created them to do. How? Because the Messiah will come and bear their sorrows. It's a picture that we see in Gethsemane. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of sorrow, even to the point of death. Jesus was exiled and grieved and despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus would bear the punishments of a sin. And this, once again, begins to be fulfilled as the church gathers for worship. As we meet in our assemblies, as we hear the assurance of pardon, the call to worship at the beginning of the service, the gospel goes forth and begins to do its work. So Zephaniah says, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. What time? Well, ultimately the day of the Lord. Inaugurated in Christ's ministry, consummated in His return. Of course, one of the prototypes is Judah's return from exile. Yes, Judah would be taken into exile because of her sin, but God would deal with those who oppress His people. And once again, we see a theme that's so prominent throughout Zephaniah. The judgment upon sinners has a corresponding element to it, the salvation of the righteous. The oppressing nations would face God's judgment. We saw that. Right? Back in 2, uh, 3 and following, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, the Philistines, the Cushites, the Assyrians. And yet at the same time, even while the mighty will judge, 19, God will save the lame and gather the outcast. The way this verse is structured puts the emphasis on gather. We'll mention a chiastic structure here uh, once again. Uh, Robertson believes that the, this portion of verse 19 is set in that chiastic structure which emphasizes the gathering, the return after the exile. The Deuteronomic code that's discovered during this uh, Josiah's uh, deliverance or just the discovery of the law in Josiah's time, his reforms, had revealed the prophecy of both exile and return. After the announcement of the covenant sanctions for blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience, there's this prophecy. God says this, Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 4. When these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has gathered you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey the voice that I have commanded you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will 
restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you and there, from there he will take you. Isaiah too had had foreseen that salvation would be provided for those who couldn't save themselves. I will bring the blind by a way in which they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make the darkness light before them and the crooked paths I will make straight. And so now Zephaniah confirms this promise. God will not leave his people in exile. He would come to rescue them. He would deliver the lame. The lame, they can't deliver themselves. They can't defend themselves. They can't out run the enemy. They can't outfight the enemy. They have to have somebody come to their rescue. God's saying, I will rescue the most helpless. Those who cannot walk will be carried by me. I will shame their, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Judah is profaned by the exile, shamed by it. But what God would do would result in a change of reputation. Once they had been a picture of shame in the lands to which they'd been driven, now they're a picture of of praise and, and fame. Deuteronomy 26 and verses 18 and 19, the Lord will set you high above all the nations which he has made in praise, in name, in honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. The renown uh, spoken of here is often translated fame. It's repeated in verse 20, so we'll deal more with that in, in just a minute. But it's the picture of God giving his people a name, calling them out, gathering them, naming them. Remember in the Old Testament, the name of purpose is very uh, significant. God's giving his people a permanent identity. He's again calling them out and naming them. That's a theme that's found in the, in the garden paradise. It's entrusted to Adam. But even more than that, it's going to be a permanent, incorruptible name. Adam lost the land. He's cast out. Israel lost the land. It would soon be taken captive. God would restore them again. Not merely the Canaanite rich land, not merely the Edenic paradise, but restore them to the archetypical heavenly kingdom. And that day, when God fully and finally saves us, it will be without the possibility of sin, rescuing us not only from the penalty of our sin, but rescuing us from the possibility of our sin ever continuing. Now, how will God do this? How will he change their shame into praise? We'll see that in verse 20. But here I want you to see the word save. It's not used in Zephaniah, except here at the very end, verses 17 and 19. And wherever you see the word save or savior in the Old Testament, you have ultimately a link to Jesus. And you know these words, uh, Yeshua in the Hebrew, Jesus in the Greek, Jesus in the English. The angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the Messiah who comes does indeed fulfill all of the demands and expectations of the prophet. And it is by his saving work that God rescues those who've been scattered and he welcomes his people. That's what we see now in the last verse of Zephaniah. It really sums up the whole book. And it actually repeats a lot of verse 19, but there's an added emphasis 
that the Lord is the one who fulfills his promises. Verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, there's, there's this gathering again. Three times in the last three verses, we read of a gathering. There's a double gathering, gathering of the lost, the gathering of the saved. Here's a gathering for glory. I think Paul helps us actually understand this when he writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, I will welcome you. It's the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same word that Paul uses here. And I think it parallels the theme of, of Zephaniah. When he gathers, he welcomes. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. At the great day of the Lord, the remnant of Israel, those who are pure, will be welcomed by God himself. And so Zephaniah concludes, I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. In the immediate horizon, God tells his people he'll restore them to the land. And they would see the immediate fulfillment of this. For some of them, this is something that may happen right before their very eyes, but surely not the complete fulfillment. It's doubtful that this little community of, of, of a few tens of thousands who return are made renowned and, and, and praised throughout all of the earth. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Zephaniah is repeating the promise of verse 19 and expanding on it. He's carrying it further. In verse 19, it said, your shame will be changed into praise and renown in all the earth. Here it says in verse 20, among all the peoples of the earth. He expands on it just a touch. Gum, peoples, all groups. It's a bit of an extension of the thought and it should trigger now at the end here, the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham. And ultimately, that's his glory. It's what Adam was supposed to do, the image of God all over the globe, but because of his sin, it's what God does. He tells Abraham that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the fulfillment of this gospel mission, the good news taken to the nations, is found in the church again of Jesus Christ. Romans 4.13 speaks of the promise that Abraham would be the heir of the world. Jesus tells us that the meek will inherit the earth. John points to a new heaven and a new earth. And that's what Zephaniah is doing here. This is a picture of the new creation. The people of God are going to be renowned among the peoples of the earth. And it's found in Christ. It's found in His church. The word renown is the word name. God's people are given a name. They are given the name of God Himself. The fame of God's people is given to them in the name of Christ, in their union with Jesus. Our fame, our praise is nothing other than the name of Jesus. Philippians 2, 9, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. It is through Christ that the nations are gathered for judgment, but His people are gathered for blessing. It is through Christ that we are made a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we can sing out the praise of the one who's called us out of darkness and gathered us into His marvelous light. That's the transaction that Zephaniah is describing when he says, I will change your shame into praise. I will change your shame into renown, shame into glory, fame for God's name, fame for God's glory. That's 
what we want to see. Revelation 3 and verse 12 tells us the one who conquers will be made a pillar in the temple of God. Do you know what that means? It means the one who prevails by the grace of God will never leave the presence of God. And Revelation goes on to say he will have the name of God written on him, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And so Zephaniah ends completing the story with which he begins. It began with a destruction of the created order. It begins with a a decreation, and it ends with the construction of a new order, a new creation in which the name of God is placed on His people and they're praised throughout the earth. It points us to the exaltation of Jesus when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And this book ends by pointing us to the fact that we have been united to this great King who will fully and finally live and reign us forever with Him. You know, in Zephaniah, we really have seen a theme of contrasts. They're sets of opposites. He begins by saying, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land. He concludes with the promise of a restoration to a new land. God's salvation is greater and wider and more magnificent than his destruction of sin. The salvation that is offered here is more magnificent than the judgment that is rendered. And the story of Zephaniah shows us how true believers, it shows those who trust in Christ that the work of God's redemption is built into his creation pattern. It's seen at creation, the destruction of it through sin the restoration of it through a new heavens and a new earth. It's seen in the first promise of redemption. It's seen in the Exodus event as God recreates His people, as He gathers them from a land of their enemies, as He calls out a people for Himself, as He gathers them to Sinai, where as a covenant assembly they hear the words of His law, a law that they can't keep, but a law that points them to Jesus. It's seen in the scattering and the confusion of languages that God will restore. It's seen in the captivity to Babylon, the rest restoration back to the new land. But all of these types, all of these pictures point us to the coming of God with us and to the institution of the church, to the consummation of all things in Jesus. And there's nothing more terrifying than the prospect of being gathered for judgment. The opening words of Zephaniah to the wicked, neither your silver nor your gold will be able to deliver you on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. But at the same time, there are no words more comforting than the prospect of being gathered and welcomed by God. Nothing more hopeful than the closing words, the Lord your God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. How do we describe this love that would send Christ to the cross to save sinners? In a way that I think was kind of Paul's dilemma in Romans chapter 8. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Can't describe it. Oh, but you can know it. Because this love is shown at the cross. That God demonstrated His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, uh, the book of Zephaniah, even though it was written over 2,500 years ago, it's about Christ working in you. It's about what Christ has done for you, and it's about your response to the God who loves you with a love that never fails. And Zephaniah calls on you to live in light of what is coming, the power of which shines back upon you in the now. It calls you to show forth God's magnificent love to all of the created order, being part of the work of restoration that is the mission of Jesus Christ, to go into all the world and be a witness to the nations of His power and His majesty and His glory, His holiness, the great King of the covenant. It calls upon you to live a life of holiness before the Lord. It calls upon you to live the life of the new creation because this creation will be dismantled and it will be turned on its head and it will be dissolved. But you are a new creation in Christ bearing His name. Old things have passed away and all things have become new.